This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, Dave Kroll. Mr. Edwards, thank you for having me on, my man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on today. I've been um, looking forward to it. It's been on the calendar for a good six weeks or so. So this yeah. has been a good start to January for me. Yeah. Well, uh, you reached out through the website, which I'm very grateful that you did. And likewise, uh, I'm grateful you, for your response. You, uh, oh, you've yeah. got the foothold here, not me. And so uh, I appreciate your <laughs> generosity with your time and for and uh, for for being a supporter. Great representation of the BJJ community. Not to, not surprising at all that uh, that that's uh, that's the way we support one another. So thank you very much. Well, uh, it's my absolute pleasure, and I think that you fit in perfectly here with all of your uh, very impressive background. And it should be known that you have recently started your own podcast, the BJJ Executive Podcast. So we're brothers in arms on that uh, That's right. That's on that right. front. We're a couple <laughs> of business guys that masquerade as uh, jiu-jitsu rios. That's uh, it. Blind squirrels, <laughs> blind squirrels looking for nuts. <laughs> so uh, yeah, let me, uh, let me introduce a little bit of who you are and what your background is. You have a sure. very uh, impressive background. So Dave is an operationally focused financial executive with 20 plus years of progressive leadership experience in both distressed and stable environments. Dave's responsibilities include elevating acquisition opportunities or evaluating acquisition opportunities, capital raising, global structuring, tax accounting, and managing administrative functions for his organizations. Prior to joining Aero Capital Solutions, Dave was the chief financial officer of Red Aviation, a portfolio company of the Cap Street Group, where he was recruited to lead the company through its ongoing financial and operational restructuring efforts. Dave joined the Red Aviation after eight years at Aero Turbine Inc., a wholly owned subsidiary of Aircap, which was a New York Stock Exchange company, where he held multiple financial and commercial leadership roles, including over four years at the company's CFO. Prior to that, Dave held senior financial positions with Spirit Airlines, also a New York Stock Exchange company, Highland Capital, and multiple operational roles within the maintenance and engineering organizations of both American and Delta Airlines. Dave received his BS from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and his MBA from the University of Dallas and is a former U.S. Marine. Dave, sincerely, thank you for your service. Thank you for your and tax dollars. he is a resident of Austin, Texas with his wife and two sons. Dave is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, brown belt like myself, which we're excited to dig into more. Right. And uh, like I said... Dave found a good good spot on the Business Jiu-Jitsu podcast. He found his home uh, with, a, with, a, with a great background like that. He fits in. I should also note that Dave is a teammate of a uh, friend of the B Business Jiu-Jitsu podcast, uh, former Navy SEAL, J.P. Dinnell. Right. And uh, J.P. now uh, lives in Texas and is a, an executive with uh, Echelon Front and was on the podcast a couple weeks ago. So, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Man, what a weird experience to hear uh, that business bio read. You know, I've never, I don't actually think I've ever had it read out loud to me before. So, uh, <laughs> so how strange that is, you know, especially yeah. in the, the context of jujitsu. But like you said, I mean, that's kind of the the original common thread I suppose we would have had. And and as I've come up through the business world, I mean, I've always tried to kind of hustle through jujitsu as well. And that's what brought um, the BJJ executive podcast up with, was, you know, just trying to manage those inevitable opposing forces that come up in life. How do you try to, how do, how do you build your career? How do you find time to stay on the mats? 
Um, and uh, I struggled with it. And my hope is that by having conversations like these, people will find commonality, common ground, and realize that it's not that uncommon. And uh, stick it out. Throw some knees yeah. and elbows a little bit. You know, hang in there. Yeah. There's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> there's no straight line to success and there's oh certainly gosh. no straight line in business or in jujitsu. And, yeah. um, the more voices that people hear out there, uh, I, I was actually just thinking about this earlier. There's, uh, one of the owners of my Academy, uh, an amazing black belt here in New York. His name is Matt Cully. He also, uh, is the founder of a grappling organization here on Long Island called rise. Okay. And, uh, there was three, distinct times during my blue belt years where I had the blue belt blues, I fell off and yeah. Matt called me and said, Hey, come back. You, you don't have to go to class. Like I'll train, you know, <laughs> he just trained. He's like, Hey, let's just roll. And you know, there's those, that fear of coming back to class and thinking like, I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to get killed. And of course at the I, time I you don't think that to yourself, but any, anybody who can be a voice like that is, is important, whether it's on a podcast or you just call somebody up, and uh, making sure that that all the people who practice any part of life recognize that it is a struggle for us all. Yeah, I, I think that like, I mean, before podcasts were there, that's what it would have been, right? It would have been the phone call or the nudge at the grocery store when you see one of your training partners. Um, and obviously, like when I talk to people that are gym owners, or I talk to people that are world champions or whatnot, which has been a lot of the uh, sampling of what I've had on so far. But I did a recording last night, and it'll come out later in January. And it's somebody that has a more traditional background. And it's amazing, because one of the cool things about jujitsu is that people pop in and out, we'll pop in and out of each other's lives at different, you know, parts of the timeline. So somebody that comes into that Long Island um, gym that you go to and sees Brown Belt Jordan has no idea about the story of the blue belt blues or, or whatnot they just see a guy that's probably mauling through folks and you know they don't know right and and, and they and don't yes, believe you yeah exactly because that's what everybody says it's like trust me you just have to make it through this you have to get out of this metaphorical shark tank <laughs> and uh the more i talk to people that have similar journeys to us which by the way as much as i would have loved to have been a 25 year old world champion and sort of wreck the adult league or whatnot you know that just wasn't my story yeah. and it isn't for so many other people so you know, it's just, it's, it's just a part of the journey. And, and, uh, you know, I'm glad there are platforms like this that could draw parallels. And for me, if it hits one person and it encourages one person to make it um, to that next step and kind of get from trough to trough and, you know, it's a supplement to their training. Uh, I, 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 uh, I think it's worth it, you know? Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's take it back a little bit to the beginning. Where did you sure. grow up? I grew up in the Midwest. I'm a St. Louis guy, hardcore Cardinals fan and, uh, and, uh, the land of bricks and Budweiser. So, uh, <laughs> St. Louis, Missouri kid here. I left when I was 17. I listed in the Marine Corps right out of high school. Wow. Um, just kind of a dumb knuckle dragger. I didn't have any prestige, uh, associated with it at all. Um, had gone on family vacations and whatnot, but I'd never seen the Pacific ocean until, um, I landed in Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego in February with my heavy coat and realized that there's palm trees and there's life outside of the winters and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of my upbringing right there. You know, um, it, I, I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I stayed in the Marine Corps for five years. And, um, you know, that's, that's a big part of my DNA right there. Got out in um, 2000 before all the wars started and whatnot. Wow. So while JP and I share the mats, I mean, we don't share those same same experiences that that he had. 
um, I, I wouldn't even feel comfortable being in the same sentence as he is in terms of some of the, the actions and the heroism that he um, showed and has documented in some of the books that you've talked about in, in your podcast and in your book. Um, but, uh, but that's, that, that's kind of my upbringing. I got out, um, my wife and I, um, were married in Okinawa, Japan. So my wife is, mm-hmm. uh, is a native Okinawan, which is, which has always been kind of a fun, um, you know, part of our life. We have two kids. I have a son right now who's 23. He's living down in Florida. And then I have a son that's in a wrapping up high school here in, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So, wow. uh, you don't look old enough to have, uh, left the military before nine 11 and, uh, and then have a 24 year old. <laughs> Hey man, that's Thanks jiu-jitsu. jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Thanks jiu-jitsu, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, a little bit of maybe some protein shakes along the way. <laughs> that's the same, that's same with you. Did you grow up playing sports in St. Louis? Yeah, I was a I was a I was a baseball player, um, but I did a little bit of everything. When I got into high school, I kind of did the the gamut of high school sports. Wrestled for a little bit, but not enough to consider myself anything other than than, than probably a ball player. And what's ironic about it is both my kids never picked up a baseball glove or a baseball bat in their life, you know? Wow. So, uh, yeah. So after you uh, went to St. Louis and then went to the West coast, where did you land after you left the military? So most of my time in the military was overseas. I mean, that, that was the reason I went in is to, to be, you know, kind of a, a deployed Marine. I mean, I had no desire to be stationed in Topeka, Kansas or anything like that. Like I wanted to get out and go see things and, and go do things. So I was stationed in the far East uh, based out of Okinawa, but had an opportunity to go all over the place. And the last year that I spent in the military, I came to the, the Dallas Fort Worth area. And essentially there was a joint reserve base concept that was being sort of piloted right out of the Clinton years. Um, and they unmothballed a, a base in Fort Worth, had a few Marines that were there and I had an opportunity to go be a part of it, which was a great segue into um, a more traditional life in the in the civilian world and yeah. um, you know being here in a major metroplex, lots of economic opportunity, lots of career options for somebody that was young and just trying to figure things out. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of how I made it in and how I made it out, I suppose. Uh, well, the Marines are very well represented on the business jiu-jitsu podcast. We've had, I've noticed, I've noticed. I don't deserve a place with any of those guys <laughs> either, by the way, man, I was just a straight up, hey, you know, just snow shoveler. Of services. Uh, there's so many lessons to be learned from, uh, the active service and, you know, having that instinct and, and learning and going through basic training and at least to the, the members that have, uh, of the business jujitsu podcast cohort of Marines have all found uh, some measure of success, which is, which is pretty cool. But yeah, recently had Kyle Rogers on and in the past, know, you know, KJ Winans and Nick Kumulatus and, and all kinds of, a few others have, that have had some stints in the Marines. So uh, thank you to all the Marines out there listening. And, and I do encourage you to get in touch, especially if you have business stories or questions. So, but thank, thank you for your service. So, so you come out of the Marines and you, you come out of Okinawa and does that at that point you go right to college? No, I was a, um, uh, I, I mean, just from a timing perspective, I hit it right, I think, in terms of um, um, just career opportunities. And I was a mechanic in the Marine Corps. And so um, I went and got my FAA licenses, which is mm-hmm. what's required to work on commercial aircraft. And I got hired at um, uh, Delta Airlines as a mechanic. So I was a just, you know, turban grease scrubbing midnight serving you know working out on the line at midnight and in the freezing cold of you know sideways sideways rain and, and at the dallas fort worth airport which is how i got started 
And then after September 11th, um, the airline industry, as you might remember, I mean, it just went through such a tumultuous ride. And so it really started rattling me up a little bit. And even though I really enjoyed the career field, I just realized like, I'm going to have to have a plan B and probably a plan C here. Um, you know, just look at a couple chess moves ahead because it's going to get rough. And it ultimately did. Um, yeah. So that encouraged me to go finish my undergraduate degree, which I did at Embry-Riddle, as you mentioned. Um, it was more of a professional degree in aeronautical uh, management. Um, and then I went immediately and enrolled in grad school, got my MBA at night and uh, just sort of got a knack for finance. And uh, from there, just sort of you know, kind of just knife fought my way up the, uh, up the ladder, you know, found, uh, found a niche in as an analyst somewhere. And then, um, you know, just sought to outwork everybody I could find in my path, you know, um, had yeah. a lot of people that brought me up, but, uh, that's kind of the connection between the financial background that you talked so much about in the strange reading of my bio to, <laughs> um, you know, that, that midnight shift scrubbing turban grease out of your fingernails, you know? Wow. Yeah, somewhat of a non-traditional path, I, I, I suppose, but it's been it is. You, a you pleasure for very, me and I've enjoyed it. You have a very interesting background coming out of the Marines and rising through finance and to the level of CFO. Uh, you know, Kyle Rogers, who was recently on the podcast as a, as a COO, you know, operationally driven um even as an engineer or how you said working on airplanes, you know, you, yeah. you think there's a, there's a lot of operational pr proficiency there, but to go the finance route, not to say that it doesn't happen. I'm sure there's plenty of Marines that have made their way into the finance community, but um, yeah. to rise to the level of CFO is, is, is quite impressive. And, and I have done it at a few different organizations, especially, well, you know, publicly traded ones. <laughs> the funny thing about it is, I mean, traditionally people think of CFOs because, well, people think of them, as former public accountants or folks that come out of big four accounting, like from Pricewaterhouse or, or Ernst & Young or whatever the case may be, um, they'll have backgrounds in like financial reporting or SEC reporting or something that has been the more traditional path. Um, but realistically, like the role itself over the last couple of decades, particularly after 2004, when like the Sarbanes-Oxley Act came out, it, it just reset the requirement and the niche that I found in the financial world, of course, you have to understand the numbers. Of course, you have to be able to dig in and understand the technical aspects of the role, whether that's in accounting or tax or global structuring or more traditional financial planning and analysis. That's obviously, you know, those are core attributes of it. But most importantly is the understanding of the economics of the business. And that comes from experience in the operation. It comes with an interest in the in the in the industry and in the company itself, and so I think long gone are the days of those ivory tower CFOs that are just up there sort of counting through things, and you know they'll pop out every once in a while. Not that there's a lot that do that anymore, um, but what I have found is that just a willingness to get out there, exercise some humility, go and learn about the business, learn from the front line, and then bring that back to your team. Not only does that connect your team to the business, who might have that more traditional like staff accountant upbringing where like those roles are typically very fungible you know people that come into the airline business for example in accounting they could also go into pharmaceuticals they could go into tech you know and so as a yeah. cfo and as a leader in the business you need to find ways to connect those dots for folks and and i i found that those skills have been more valuable than what might be considered more traditional you know like the financial reporting and you know, yeah. gap voodoo and all of that other stuff that, you know, tends to come with the CFO role. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that, uh, that we've gone down this path.
and I and I'm glad that you're very conversational on it because I think it's a good time to maybe stop and and give people a little uh, mentoring or tutoring on exactly what where the CFO role has evolved. Uh, let me set it up for you a little of what I've seen sure. happen and, and what's happened at some of my businesses. So um, people often think, like you said, oh, the CFO is a graduate of the accounting department and you come up through the traditional accounting roles into the controller and then the controller grows up into the CFO. And, and that does still happen a lot. Sure. Um, I can think be very that successful this, that way too. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of that is still very much accurate. And, and across many businesses, except the thing is, is that as the tax code becomes more complex and as the accounting role and the controller role, role, role keeps being built out more and more, filing for taxes is a very different discipline than the financing of a company 100%. and reporting, reporting to the, all the different tax authorities, especially if you're a public company and looking back and, and reporting to your investors that way is very, very different than the way that the the other side of the business works when they're growing the business. And so I, you do see a lot of these CFO roles, roles now working hand in hand with the CEO on growing the business and, and working on financing. And even from when I started my career, how simple it was to finance a building post 08, you know, like all you needed was a pulse. <laughs> yeah. And now if I want to do the most simple financing, the volumes of paperwork, three years of tax returns for every entity I'm involved with, you know, I own probably over 35 businesses now. So they want to see three years wow. of tax returns for, for every entity I own. They want to see personal financial statements. They want to see every single bank account. The cash balance is three months. And so yeah. you're talking about literally tens of thousands of paid pieces of paper to close a basic financing transaction. And so the more complicated they've made both of these disciplines, you've had to like separate it out. So I'm interested from your perspective, like coming up through that operationally minded role into the financial analyst role, like where is like the modern CFO, like where do you kind of see, where do you see the, the position going? Well, it, it's a good question. And oh gosh, it, it, in each one of the experiences that I've had, it's required a few different tools to be developed in my own tool belt. And because like, for example, because I didn't have that traditional accounting upbringing, um, my first CFO role, like, I mean, it might've even been borderline irresponsible to have put me in it. Um, you know, I had good mentors that were there. I had good people that brought me up around it. I had traditionally come from more of a traditional FP&A background, financial planning and analysis. And the controllership world and the taxation world were something that I sort of had to kind of limp through a little bit. So number one, no matter what CFO, what industry, um, no matter how complex the organization, I think every CFO needs to recognize that they're not going to have every tool in their tool belt. Um, and I mean, obviously that can be flexed, that can be throttled and it, you know, uh, depending on the circumstances, I mean, it will depend on how much of a supplement you're going to need, but more than likely you're, you're going to need to build a team of experts around you. And then the company that I'm in right now, the majority of our operations are offshore. And uh, most of my team, for example, is in, is in Europe. Um, we have very complicated um, funding structure that goes, um, um, that goes through a lot of different entities and a lot of different jurisdictions. 
I'm not going to have developed that background. And it wouldn't have mattered if I had built my, my career up in public accounting and PwC through the traditional SEC reporting route or whatever. That's just not something that you're going to, um, people, people focus on. There's subject matter experts there. And so I think for the modern CFO, no matter where you're at, um, that's probably the first thing that you need to take some stock on is what kind of tools do you need to put in your tool belt? Can you develop them or do you need to have them developed around you? And then quickly start putting those supplements in place. And I've got a person that, that focuses exclusively on tax. I've got a person that came out of ENY that is my controller and that I rely on. And it's up to me to make sure that I can speak the language and that I know the right thread to pull on and the right, um, um, the right holes to poke at. Um, but uh, there's no way one person in the modern world uh, in a company that has any level of complexity and what you described with your own personal situation and that organizational structure that you've got uh, from an entity perspective, you know, it's, it's hard for one person to, to cover all that, right? And so that's probably the first thing. And then I imagine there's another layer of that as well, that, uh, <laughs> that when you get into the um, individuality of each different um, um, organization, it's going to have its own unique problems. Yeah, absolutely. So just to put a little, uh, a little stamp on that puppy, you know, there's people who are in the accounting field and generally accounting is looking backwards and, and financing is looking forwards, generally speaking, and yeah, generally speaking, grow, grow, grow the business. And so Dave has had experience in, in both of those, both of those theaters. Um, in my own career, I've, I keep going back and getting more and more education in accounting and in finance, accounting and in finance, and just oh, really? keep, keep sharpening the sword, keep, you know, uh, learning more. And every time I go back and, and, and learn more about it and I have more and more experience, I, it's like jujitsu, you know, I, I'm learning the same arm bar. I'm learning the same escape, <laughs> yeah. but I'm picking up new nuances on it and new details that have been so impactful in my life. And I just want to give a quick shout out right here to uh, my professor at Harvard Business School Online, which anybody can go and pick up his books is uh, Mihar Desai, Finance. And you could take his class. I think pretty sure you could do it for free. Um, and he has a book called The Wisdom of Finance. And he wow. talks about these principles and he's got a couple great books on, on really, really easy to digest books on finance. So if you're interested in the finance role or in, um, in becoming a CFO one day, I, I absolutely, I'll put all the links in the, uh, the comment section of this, but no, that's, that's, yeah. that's super interesting. And if I remember correctly, I mean, just from reading, this is it, your book, um, mm -hmm. I mean, if I, if I remember correctly, you sort of walked through a scenario in there where you either had um, an entry level accountant or somebody that wasn't quite up to the task. And then you elevated that role over time. So I'm kind of curious how that's panned mm -hmm. out. I mean, it's been a few years since the book's been written and oh, yeah. has, has grown. So, so has that been my, consistent with your experience? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I've had a lot of on the ground trial by fire experience with, uh, with the financing and the accounting of a business. And in all transparency, the first time I took accounting in my freshman year of college, I, uh, I had to drop it mid semester because I was going to fail. Now, it <laughs> yeah. was, I decided to take I'm an 8 a.m. <laughs> class in my first semester of college, and that was the really the reason why I was going to fail. But uh, uh, the point was is that when I first good took, initiative, poor judgment. <laughs> <laughs> when I first took accounting in college, all of these concepts were like Chinese. You know, yeah. I, I could not understand it. Yeah, when I went back and took accounting after I already was running a business, 
all the learnings were filtered through my own business experience. And so these yeah. concepts were went from being concepts and widgets to being through my own business. And I understand yeah. it so much more. So, so, so much more. So when I was uh, quite arbitrary otherwise. Yeah. So what Dave's talking about is uh, I told the story in my first book when I was growing mixology from one to its first, probably, probably five or six stores, my clothing business. And I hired over a three year period, I had 12 bookkeepers. And I had 12 crazy stories from all of those bookkeepers. <laughs> and I made a huge uh, bet in 2015, starting a, uh, a wholesale business on top of my re retail business. So we just opened a wholesale division. Long story short, I lost a million dollars in that business. Um, it was devastating. I mean, I severe. talk about it on this podcast. I, I don't, I don't sugarcoat the numbers for people. To some people, that sounds like no money. To other people, that's more money than they could ever conceive of. But yeah. uh, I was, uh, I was about thirty at that time, and I took this huge risk, and I failed spectacularly. And my 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 bookkeeper at the time was completely ill-equipped to help me with the complexities of the size of the business. And we had about we had a. A, a big loss on the business that year, probably somewhere to the tune of like four or five hundred thousand dollar total loss when you take the, all the divisions together. I knew I had to go out and get a, a controller, you know, mm -hmm. someone who could really help me with all the financial controls of the building, managing my payroll, managing my inventory properly. And so I had all this revenue, but the money was just leaking out of the bottom of the business. And it wasn't that we weren't doing well, it was that we were just. For example, this bookkeeper wrote a $26,000 check twice <laughs> and just gave $26,000 away, I remember, and we caught it. But you can only imagine how many things I didn't catch because of yeah, right. more control. Yeah, statistically, if that's just <laughs> randomly stumbled upon, I mean, yeah, right. I'm, I'm sure there were a few other leaky, leaky and holes. So, yeah. so an early part of my philosophy in business came, I said, I don't have the budget right now to go out and hire a, someone who is going to be paid probably three or four times what that bookkeeper was going to get paid. It was going to be the, my biggest hire of all time. But what I said to myself was, if I hire the right person, they're going to save me many multiples of their salary. And so I worked with a recruiting firm and I went out and I, and I hired a really great controller. He's still my right hand man to this day. He's actually yeah, he's got a cameo CFO. in the book as well. <laughs> I think he had a he's now the pages. CFO of our business. He grew up from controller wow. to CFO and he's an amazing guy and an amazing CFO. That is awesome. But in his first year of business using fundamental financial controls, he saved our business over a million dollars. And so we had wow. a, a massive swing from about a 405,000 or $500,000 loss to a huge gain the next year. And the revenue didn't change all that much. It was just about planning the controllable expenses. And so, yeah, so that's that story of my own experience, my early, early experiences with growing a business. And my dad always told me, he said, sales drive the business, focus on the sales, yeah. focus on the sales. But it does get to a point where you really need to be very, very disciplined uh, with, your, with your spending because you can make 10 million bucks, but if you spend 10 million in one, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So, I've heard that story so many different times from different people as well. And, and I have a really good friend. He's a very successful entrepreneur and has put a, a humongous platform together that I, I won't go too deep into, but he tell, he started as just a, you know, kind of a closet trader, you know, and he was a buy low, sell high type business. It wasn't anything yeah. sexy. It was just something that needed to, you know, kind of get, 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 an, get an account going. And he had a, an accountant 
and he used QuickBooks. And so, you know, he said the account was just super focused on getting QuickBooks, getting QuickBooks, getting QuickBooks. And he said, the story he'll tell and paraphrased and shortened is that like, I had it open for a while and then I just closed my laptop and said, if this is all I focus on right here, then I'm never gonna go anywhere. I won't generate a dollar to put in this thing, you know? Yep. And so that's the lesson for CFOs as well is that, you know, like I don't work at an accounting company, you know, like we have a commercial premise and it's important for the CFO to understand that, find a way to support that. And then also build the team up underneath it. Like if your staff accountant doesn't understand that as well, you know, we're not there to produce financials. That's a byproduct. That's a consequence, you know? Yeah. And so sometimes that's a tough culture to, to, to mix in. And I've always looked, I've never been a CEO. I'm not, I'm not a founder. I'm not a successful entrepreneur like you are. And so, you know, I've always looked up longingly and sort of, uh, you know, that's the next skill to build on, you know? Is that something that, do you have a burning desire for, uh, for the next chapter of your life? It's a part of it for sure. And, and my wife and I have done a few different things. We've got a small little holding company where we've done a couple different en enterprises, but they've never taken off, you know, and, and, uh, and a lot of that has been uh, a bit of the fear factor, you know, and, and a yeah. bit of the safety net as well. Like it's easy to play it safe and, and be inside your comfort zone. So uh, I, um, stand, I stand by the in the future, that might be there. Listen, I just wrote, read this great book. I finished it a couple a day or two ago and I put it up on uh, Instagram and What's it right, before, right. It's the checklist manifesto. You may have read it because it's, I uh, is it in your book listed as one of the recommended? No, or? I just got it recommended to me recently, even though it's okay. uh, a couple years old. And, but the reason why it might be interesting for you, especially is because it's a, it was a doctor who, who took the principles of airline pilots and their checklists over to the medical theater. And oh, about how okay. simple, simple checklists help us avoid mistakes. Um, he has this great quote about entrepreneurs. It, 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 he's talking about VCs finding great entrepreneurs to invest in. And he says, finding a good idea is apparently not all that hard. Finding an entrepreneur who can execute a good idea is a different matter entirely. One needs a person who can take an idea from proposal to reality, work the long hours, build a team, handle the pressures and setbacks, manage technical and people problems alike, and stick with the effort for years on end without getting distracted or going insane. Such people are rare and extremely hard to spot. And like when I read that about entrepreneurs, what I think of is jujitsu black belts. It's like, is it, is it <laughs> yeah. a different description of being able to just stick it out and grind? And you think about how many people begin the journey and yeah. how few make it to the end. Uh, or when I say, or just keep continuing, I should say, not even the end, but just continue down yeah, the path. Hang, hang in there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so true. So, so true. where'd you start your Brazilian jiu-jitsu journey? Down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at uh, under Pablo Popovich mm -hmm. at uh, the BJJ Center, I think is what nice. it's called. ADCC yeah, it was, uh, legend. Yeah, big time. And he was on the mats. Wagner Rocha was there as mm -hmm. well. He had uh, originally started sort of a, a branch of the BJJ Center. Um, so there were some just really big names back then. And of course I was too dumb and naive to even realize what I had available to me. Um, it just happened to be the closest to my house. And that was in 2007. Um, and so do the math. I mean, that's almost 15 years, you know, yeah. and you know where I'm at now. So, I mean, there've been a lot of pauses that have happened along the way. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's just part of the journey. It is. Uh, I started in 2009 and it's, uh, it's a long road, especially when you're, you know, you're not a young, young man and you can dedicate your whole life to it and live on the mat and I you know. have a career and family and all the obligations today. I, I had a full day of meetings and calls and I got a, at 10 AM, I got a call from my son's school. 
oh, he's sick. You have to come pick him up. My wife is a doctor. She couldn't do it. And the nanny was, wasn't available today. And <laughs> that was it. I had to drop everything yeah. I was doing in my life to go take care of my, my four-year-old. There, there, there you go. And that's the thing. There's seasons to this too, you know? And so I, I've had this conversation several times and it's come up on the podcast that we've done. Um, and that, you know, originally when I started the podcast, I mean, it was about kind of like achieving some balance with jujitsu as in a more prominent role, because I felt like people had left it out, but sometimes it's the other way around. I mean, there's definitely a reciprocal to that. And the fulcrum always stays the same. It's just how you load it up. Um, sometimes people hyper-focus on jujitsu and they end up burning themselves out. And then they also end up neglecting a career. They might neglect their family as well, which isn't a good recipe to longevity. Mm. And as much as I would have loved, as I mentioned before, to have been that, you know, 20 year old stud that just, you know, kind of, you know, rocked the world and, and made a name in the competition scene. Had I been that, I wouldn't be talking to you about business today. You know, I wouldn't have um, all of the pleasures that come with being a husband and a father and, and um, having a family that I love. And yeah. so, um, you know, the, your cups are filled up different ways. And, and like, I think the conversations that we have about jujitsu and the stages of life that we're in right now, you know, it, I, to me, I just want to keep that flame going. And there've been so many instances where it's almost just blown out and slipped out of my hands. And I've had people along the way that have brought me back up, that have pulled me back up, some of it on pure luck, some of it on pure timing. Um, and, and I hope people hear those messages. And if you're 35 years old, if you've had your purple belt dusty in the closet for a while, and you're afraid to get back into it, you know, guess what? There are people that have felt that way as well, you know, mm -hmm. and your blue belt blues, for example, like, why am I no good? <laughs> why can't I figure this out? You know, <laughs> you know, yeah. believe the brown belt when he tells you, you know, like after he's done, you know, sort of turning you upside down and folding you in your laundry, um, <laughs> you know, Hey, we're, we all kind of go through that. So, yeah. um, um, I'm just fortunate at this stage of life, I've got a, a little bit more time um, to devote to it. I've been able to travel quite a bit and train. Um, mm -hmm. I've been up to your neck of the woods a few times and uh, and trained up in Maine with with the Origin crew. And, and oh, nice. uh, yeah. it's just been, it's just- Shout a, out a Pete Roberts, uh, friend of the podcast. hundred percent. I watched his episode on a business jujitsu podcast and uh, Pete, whether he knows it or not, and whether he'll watch this or watch mine or not, um, was actually a big part of the inspiration for the BJJ Executive podcast. Oh, yeah. And what ultimately ended up happening, Jordan, was that- um, I had wanted to kind of create some sort of platform for a long time, but maybe it was the business wiring. I don't know ultimately what, what, um, uh, you know, kept dragging me down into this sort of commercial hole. And either I heard Pete say this or Pete might've mentioned it. I mean, Pete's been in, in a lot of different podcasts. And so sometimes you hear hours of somebody, even though you might not know them that well personally, but he mentioned part of the underlying premise for Origin in the first place was that he wanted to give something back to jujitsu. Um, he's talked so much about the Deco and Alexi and how much they mean to him as a part of the, uh, you know, part of his journey. And, and it just sort of clicked, like there's a communal aspect to this. That doesn't have to be something that's got anything other than the ability to give back. And that's a hundred percent what I want um, um, to be able to do is just, be a source of optimism and encouragement for folks that are out there that have gone through some of the struggles that I know I've been through and continue to go through and I maybe haven't even graduated from the infancy of yet. I don't really know. Um, 
But the more I talk about it, the more I realize that, man, we're all kind of in this little pot of boiling water. You know? And uh, and it's just uh, and sometimes it's just a matter of hanging on, you know, let it cool off a little bit. So, yeah. Well, what I found is that when you make good decisions and you do good things in your life, more good things seem to come. You know, yeah. and one of those good things is is the what you were just describing, which is, you know, passing it on. Yeah. And it's one thing to go down the path of the journey. But my sensei always says, each one teach one. And you know, you're the the act of teaching and the act of sharing makes you better anyway. Like it just helps you, helps yeah. you get better. And it is just impossible to get better at jujitsu without great training partners and great teachers and mentors. And sure. <clears throat> that common thread that that you and I have found is um is that other people kind of want to talk about it too you know it's like oh wait i've had that experience also and like yourself i've had the opportunity to train all over the world this this year alone i trained in germany i trained in 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 berlin i was in paris oh wow Um, been in texas and florida all i mean all literally all over the world training jujitsu at different places i was just in st bart's with the bjj globetrotters guys okay that's amazing wherever i go and I'm talking about now I've been training. This is my 14th year I'm in training. I have lit, knock on wood, I have never once had a bad experience going into a gym. Yeah. It has always been the same thing. And I think that's a testament to jujitsu, like the, yeah. you're saying, paying it back to jujitsu. I think that the art itself, there's something about it that when you're on that mat and you're training, you're so present and you're so locked in on what you're doing. Even guys, even if you're an asshole, while you're doing yeah. jujitsu, jujitsu's got you, I think. That's not that's always. True. I'm sure that's there's guys out there, you know, there's the knuckleheads. I mean, I've seen them coming out of the gym, but they don't usually last very long. That's right. They usually have a way of getting flushed out. The other very thing good. that I found, and I'm not sure if this was um, your experience in like Germany and France, for example, but but um, eat, but like I, I lived in Japan for a bit. Um, a couple of years ago, I went over there to study Japanese and take a little bit of a career break. And of course, I found a place to train immediately because not only was it, you know, important to me to just kind of keep the keep the path going, but it's a great way to make make friends and mm-hmm. stay in shape and oh, all yeah. that other stuff. And the instruction was in Japanese for the most part. And it, what's funny is that after a while, I didn't even notice. Like it didn't matter, you know. Like we're all doing this. Nobody cared. I mean, like it, it was just. You have your life's in and outside of the gym, but I mean, like that is such a unique bond. And while you're rolling, I mean, you have that empty mindset that's just, you know, I'm I'm present in the problem that I've got in front of me, which is fill in the blank. It could be a hand in the collar, it could be something on top of you. I mean, there's just, you know, there's there's innumerable um, um, answers to that to that issue. But that's that's what's beautiful about it. You know, absolutely it love it. Yeah, the friendships are are special, and I keep in touch with a lot of people all over the world that I've trained with a few times. They follow the podcast, they follow the social media, and you know, for all the terrible things that social media has brought into our life and our people, it it's, it has its good things too. And that's one of the beautiful yeah. things is being able to stay in touch with people of all different cultures from all over the world. Yes, when I was in Paris, just like you, it was in French. Really? All the people there. Presumably so, you can't speak French. I don't, I don't no, know. Maybe. The, the lesson was in French. <laughs> Most of them did not speak any English whatsoever. There was one American uh, expat that I, a female that I was training with a little bit, but I mean, I probably rolled with 10, 15 guys that night and yeah. there was very little English. Yeah. In Berlin, there was almost no German. They were, it was oh, really? completely <laughs> in English. Berlin is a very international city and uh, English is one of the, one of the very, very common languages there, if not one of the most common languages. And so 
interesting yeah. dichotomies there. But yeah, really, going, going really all is. over the world and creating these friendships is, is a very powerful part of the art too. And I love being able to drop into a city. So I was in Berlin. My wife was running the Berlin Marathon. Oh, wow. Okay. We Good landed, went into the hotel room. I was not in that room for more than 30 seconds. And I was like, I'm running to this class. I got to go. Yeah. Walked downstairs, called an Uber. 15 minutes later, I'm doing jujitsu. That's know, awesome. Like, how what better awesome way to, that? that's amazing. I mean, what better way to get the jet lag out and all the airplane funk and all that other oh, stuff yeah. than, you know, sweat out some of that nasty airplane food, <laughs> you know, on the, on, on the mats. I yeah. have found that like when I go, uh, for example, like I mentioned, I have a, I have a big component of my team that's in, uh, that's in Ireland. I don't know if I actually mm -hmm. mentioned that or not, but I have a home gym in Dublin that yeah. I go to because I'm just there so often. And when I first arrived, um, man, you want to talk about guys just going out of their way to make you feel welcomed. And I remember having a conversation with the professor, the person that owns that school and shout out to jungle BJJ in, in, in Dublin, um, on just like, Hey, you know what? A lot of my early upbringing was traveling and, and, you know, I didn't always have the best experience, but when I did, I remembered it. And that's the experience that I want to have here. And guess what? When I come back to Highland village, Texas and train at double five with Formiga, mm -hmm. I mean, he brings that, that, that spirit to the mat. And when I see visitors come in, I mean, I want to emulate that as well. And, yeah. and so, I mean, there's so much of a pay it forward and also a give it back and, and, uh, and, uh, it's not um exclusive to jujitsu but it is somewhat unique and uh, yeah. it's persistent for sure can you talk a little bit about your academy and your professor and just maybe the scene jujitsu scene in austin right now and yeah on. i'm actually uh, i'm actually in dallas fort worth um, oh you're in dallas in oh. austin yeah okay. yeah and uh and uh um we've we've been a dallas family for a long time we've sort of been in between cities a few different uh, in a few different instances, but uh, we are we are DFW residents, and I train at the Double Five Highland Village location, which is under um, Rafael Formiga. He's a fifth degree black belt under Andre Dedeco, which I think you've got some kind of a connection with, or have been yeah. to some of the Dedeco seminars. Yeah, um, J JP. That's where I met JP. He did okay. a, um, Echelon Front uh, leadership training at the Deco's Academy. Oh, I see. And me and okay. one of my buddies from Jiu Jitsu, a, a guest on this, uh, Michael Conicelli who's a FDNY, we drove up, we left at three o'clock in the morning. We drove to Massachusetts. We did like a eight and a half hour day at the decos. And then we drove back to New York. <laughs> it was a very, yeah. very long day. That's but, amazing. Uh, yeah. That's shout out amazing. to Deco. What a guy. I mean, he puts his arm around you, makes you Dude. feel like, you know, you're the only guy in the world. I mean, it's 100%. Like I, in, in a way, and I've talked to Formiga about this on several different occasions, Formiga and Dedeco have a relationship that has inspired me in ways that I never would have thought with jujitsu. And one of the most, I guess, unexpected ways was when I realized, first of all, the lineage itself is, is something that I've paid attention to. And so because I had heard stories about Dedeco, when I went up to Maine to train at the origin camps, Dedeco was a big part of that. Um, Formiga went last year, but the year before he hadn't been, and I was there by myself and I saw Dedeco sitting over talking to a student. I went over to introduce myself and I just told him, Hey, look, I'm one of Formiga's students. And I just wanted to say hi and thank you for all the knowledge that you've passed on and what you're doing here, man. He, his face just lit up because of the relationship that he's got with Formiga. He grabbed me. He walked me through old photos in his phone and stuff when Formiga <laughs> was a kid. It, yeah. And, and while that's fun and stuff like that, what it did was it kind of jarred into me this, like this notion that. You get locked into your program, you get stuck in your like, hey, I'm going to go to the Tuesday night class or I'm going to go train at lunch on Wednesday or whatever the case may be. And it's tempting 
and sometimes inevitable for that to be somewhat individual. But when you realize that this has a connection that is more community-based than you might realize, and it's so much more about others than it is about you, and this has got a bigger impact than the individual could possibly have, then it becomes such an enriching experience. And that's what happened to me as a result of the relationship that Formiga and Dodeco have. It has nothing to do with me. I'm just Formiga's student, you know? Um, but it really jarred something into me. And, and as I talked to Formiga about it, I mean, at some point, like I would love to be able to teach jujitsu and I hope I can emulate that as well and transmute yeah. that to my students, just like it's been to me. It's been one of the most unexpected and rewarding parts of jujitsu that I've had so far. All the moves, all the fun fitness stuff, all that stuff aside. I mean, the more yeah. spiritual and emotional elements have been um, the most enriching and the most unexpected. Yeah, there's a this like release that you get, um, it, like a mental release when you're done. Like the the amount of problem solving that you have to do, you know, they become <laughs> yeah, human chest. Like you walk out of there and you're just, whew, it's a hundred percent. I'm sure you've experienced this as well. I mean, given the amount of responsibility that you've got as a CEO and as a founder, and having the complexity in the life that you've that you've that you've described. I've walked into the mats with like major, major problems with huge economic implications that I just couldn't see the back end of. I'm like, oh, here I am, I'm gonna train. One and a half hours later, I mean, I am clear-minded and of course the problem isn't solved, but the solution at least had a path and, and I was un able to untangle and I suppose detach enough in order to you know, see straight and clear um, in order to kind of find the other side, you know, it doesn't make the problem simpler, but it makes the solution a little bit more visible. And, uh, and that is jujitsu. That's uh, I talk about that. I don't very get that often. from running. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, well, they've talked about this a lot, you know, running is so mental and you get in your head even more in jujitsu. You are one, you were completely out of your head. You have, there is no thought you are so hundred percent locked in on what you are doing. You can't slip up for a second. If you slip up, you are all of a sudden your arms over your head and your legs totally. behind your back. And <laughs> you're getting it. You're folded up, you, you know, <laughs> Oof, I mean, you cannot, so you're so locked in on what you're doing, but what happens is, is, um, your subconscious is working and the principles that are playing out and the techniques that are playing out are helping you unlock the problems of your life your home problems, your life problems, your family problems, your, yeah, uh, your work problems. Much. And, and, and then I have the benefit that my sensei is, is a deep thinker and a very, very wise tactician. And he's very well read in all of the martial arts. And so every, you know, most nights he does a mat chat after class and he talks about Musashi and he talks about Kano. Oh, wow. He talks about, you know, a Buddhist philosophy. He talks about, you know, the real philosophy of martial arts. And even though he would say that he doesn't know anything about business, like he has helped me through so many business problems. When I've, you know, some of the deepest problems that I faced in my career have been the things you don't want to do, lawsuits, having mm -hmm. to fire people, dealing with um, comp competitors. And so like you're dealing with these issues and you really don't hear people talk about these issues much. I mean, nobody gives you a playbook yeah. on how to deal with employment labor terms, ADA lawsuits. Yeah, you know, these it becomes very binary, very black yeah. and white. And so you, you have to think about like, what is the right thing and what is the wrong thing to do? And very often your first instinct is just like in jujitsu, it, it's usually counterintuitive to your first instinct. Like that's what mm -hmm. jujitsu teaches you. It, un, it, it you, you unlearn the things that you just 
would otherwise do, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, when somebody's on top of you, your first instinct is to push them off with all your force and all your arms and everything, even though what you really need to do is you need to make a frame and you need to get onto a hip and you need to do a knee to elbow escape, right? Yeah, you have and to endure so, the pain a little longer, you know, which is counterintuitive, as you said. That's why you want to get them off you, you know, this, this guy shouldn't be here, yeah. you know, and but so, uh, the, the answer is it's, it's a little bit deeper, deeper path into the cave, you know, into the pain cave. I hope that any of the listeners here, if you decide to start a business or you're running a business, I don't wish it on anybody, but there's probably, if you run a business and you have some measure of success, then one day you're going to get served a lawsuit on your paper and on, on your desk. And unfortunately I've been there many dozens of times, you know? Wow. And when you open up that lawsuit, the first thing that you want to do is metaphorically push it off with all your might. F you, why is this happening to me? Calling your lawyer, calling this, calling your friend, calling your wife. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And uh, when Freddie Trillo was on this podcast, Freddie Trillo is a former SWAT officer and BJJ black belt down in Miami. He said that when he started jujitsu, it was because he was a, a rookie cop and this guy threw him to the ground and was beating the life out of him. And as he was dying, He's thinking to himself, how is this happening to me? Wow. You know, and I'll like have, I'll I, have to check that one out. I saw I did see yeah. that one, but wow. that's a good that's a good one. Like Freddie Trill is a, a great dude. And so you see these parallels, whether you're a SWAT officer or, a, or an executive, yeah. or an entrepreneur, or you're running a jujitsu academy, and these things happen to you. A student slips and falls, or somebody drives their truck through the window of your academy. Like all these business things happen. Your controller mm -hmm. loses twenty six thousand dollars <laughs> or yeah, twice is almost always to metaphorically push them off with all of your might. But That's what you really need to parallel. do is build that muscle for the, for the knee to elbow escape in business. And, and that's, th those are tactics. You know, you, you learn these, these, this tactical approach to business that there are a, things that you do. There's a series of steps. And actually that's what my new book is about business jujitsu. It's about all the things I learned throughout jujitsu and my business career. And then when COVID hit, how did I just know what to do? You know, how, yeah. why was I, why did it become an opportunity for me? How did I grow my business through COVID? You know, when other yeah. 600,000 businesses folded in 2020. Especially brick and mortar. Yeah, brick and mortar, right. And so like the 3 million businesses have, has, have gone out in the U.S. since COVID, 600,000 right after COVID, like immediately. And so like, how did, how did I know what to do? Like, mm -hmm. so that, that's what my new book is about. It's like, I can't going wait to back get into and dissecting it, each one of those decisions and saying like, how did I know to do the, you know, if somebody throws me to the ground right now in jujitsu, I just do it. Yeah. No <laughs> I don't kidding. think about it. One of the things that I've started focusing, focusing on a lot more, and this is sort of a reverse path into the, into business, I, I suppose. Um, and it, there, there's a reciprocal to this. It could work both ways, but um, you've obviously, um, or presumably anyway, have hired a lot of people in your businesses over the years. Um, you've, you've, you outlined some of it in your book. Um, one of the takeaways that I had in your book actually was like, disloyalty is a disease, I think it was, you know? <laughs> so that's a whole different topic. But, yeah. but one of the things that I have focused on as a somewhat older practitioner, I'm 44 years old. I mean, there's a lot of people that are rolling that are a lot older than I am um, that I hope to be able to make too. But like at some point you need to shift your game and you need to focus on the long, long haul. And to me, it's about intent. And so when I go in and I train, I have a game plan. When I warm up, I have a game plan. 
Um, that doesn't mean I don't have fun. That don't mean that doesn't mean that some nights I don't I don't you know talk or whatnot. But like if if I'm rolling with somebody, I have a productive goal that I want to get out of that role. And what I hope that accomplishes is that over time, the year that I spend doing that will be more productive than the year when I was a white belt or a blue belt and you know kind of milled around or just showed up or whatnot. And the funny thing is, is when I connect that back to business, I started noticing in like hiring that people you know, you'll, you'll, let's say that you want to hire a, a GM or whatnot. They say, hey, look, I've got 10 years of experience. Sometimes when I look into those, I'm like, you don't really have 10 years of experience. You kind of have like two years of experience five times, you know? <laughs> and when I start thinking about that, I'm like, that's not what I want my jujitsu to be. That's not what I want my team to be built around either, you mm -hmm. know? So there is this parallel here that sometimes, uh, once again, I mean, maybe it's just because we're jujitsu nerds and we live in this world and we try to find little little strengths to pull on and, 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 and to get back to it. Um, yeah. But like, it, it's just one of those like little twists in 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 the fabric that uh, um, I didn't expect to find, you know. Yeah, well, that's uh, kind kind of like the book I mentioned before, the Checklist Manifesto, which is uh, I'll have to check that out. I'm you, oh, you'll love it. So I mean, this I, is just I would uh, absolute must read because. It, it kind of goes back to one of my favorite quotes, which is from one of my favorite books, The Alchemist. And it says, uh, it's so simple, it could be written on the face of an emerald. And there it is, these things in life are these truths. They're so simple. We overcomplicate everything. Mm -hmm. And so um, what the pilot, what these pilots have said is like, they have these little mini one page checklists for catastrophic problems. Yeah. Surgeons, you know, it's life and death when you, when these, something goes wrong, you know, they're starting a surgery. These, these very, very, very simple checklists have say, I think that the, the original study that they did, it was published in 2007. It said that they had a 47% increase in deaths from like people dying. That's a huge improvement, you know, yeah, and it was a no. global study. So, wow. um, you can imagine that beginning your day, your business or your jujitsu practice with the same basic principle of of having, you know, uh, intention, you know, I have my notebook sitting right in front of me and yeah. every single day I start off, it's the same thing I have. And this is forever, but I have my checklist. Oh, I, I try cool. to share this all the time. And it's like, how could I possibly stay on top of everything that I have to do? I couldn't remember all of it. Yeah. And so it's not the details of what to do. It's just the little reminders. And, um, yeah, in jujitsu, it's that, that is, um, that's helped me tremendously to go in yeah. with, you know, a game plan, something that I don't want more on. Yeah. That was one of the first, uh, first lessons that I had with Formiga. We did a private when I first joined the gym, when I moved to the area and, and some of it was kind of a get to know you type of a thing. And I came in as a purple belt. And so, um, um, but, but, but it was basically like, look, we need to spend a little bit of time together, figuring out what your game plan actually is. doesn't have to be that way in a year. Um, doesn't even have to be that way on Friday, actually, you know, but like we need to start somewhere and then from there we'll build technique. And if that, those techniques don't work, well, now we have something we can troubleshoot, but we're not just going to go about this and do it. You know, I'm not going to watch you and tell you what I think or teach you a move or whatnot. You know, it starts yeah. with coming up with a plan and then you can execute on it. And of course we can calibrate, we can make adjustments, um, yeah. you know, but, but it's, it, it, I would use the word game changer somewhat lightly, <laughs> but it's kind of a game changer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me uh, share my screen here for a moment. Sure. Love to uh, show everybody your uh, where to find you. So you're at BJJ Executive on Instagram. That's right. And um, you also, let's see. Yeah, here. we've got a couple good ones out there. I've got a website as well. Uh, BJJ yeah, I'm going to share that right com. now. 
Yeah. And the purpose of the website really was to have a landing page for folks. Um, you know, I, um, I felt somewhat compromised just going out and asking somebody, Hey, if you want to come on my podcast, please do so. <laughs> um, I wanted, I, I put a little bit of a trailer out there. And so if I were to ask you, for example, Hey, do you want to come on and, and talk? Here's a little primer of what I like to talk about. That's why I put the website together. But if you do, um, if you don't have access to, um, Spotify or Apple podcasts or, or whatnot forever, or for whatever reason, or you're listening mm-hmm. at your workplace and you'd rather do it on your computer, then you could also use the web player that's on the web site so uh beautiful well uh i have a feeling it's not going to be the last time we're talking on the podcast i i I hope not and i hope i can reciprocate at some point because again um you know so everybody knows i mean i reached out to you i said hey look is there a way that we can collaborate at some point you've already kind of got a foothold in this you've already got it figured out you've been incredibly successful in business i've seen some of the heavy hitters you've got on your podcast if there's any way i could participate in it and like 10 minutes later man you were back at me with a incredibly optimistic and and encouraging message. And uh, um, the pleasure has been all mine. I owe you and I'm very appreciative of the time that you've invested in this and for allowing me to come on and and be a part of this. So thank you very much, Jordan. I I thank you for the kind words and I think that you're right meant to be where you are. And um, I remember the day that I started my podcast, I had no connections. I had no track record. I had no Instagram account. I didn't have anything. <laughs> all I had, <laughs> all I had, was the desire to go out there and speak to people that I admired. And I said to my wife, and this was December of 2019. I said, "I'm going to write a book called Business Jujitsu," and <laughs> and she's like, "That's great." And I said, "I'm going to start a podcast and talk to all my heroes." I said, "I'm going to make my heroes my friends." She's like, "Well, that sounds like a great idea, honey. Go do that." <laughs> <laughs> That's and cool. In January 2020, I locked myself in a podcast studio in New York City. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know any of the equipment. I had no nothing. I just talked into the microphone, and then, um, you know, zero to one. I read the quote before about entrepreneurs: zero to one. That's it. It's just, there. You go. Yeah, the start bug. with the first sale. Yeah. Dave, uh, I'm at your service. Let me know how I can be helpful to you. And I look forward to continuing our relationship. Thank you for being on today. That sounds great. Thank you very much, Jordan. Bye. Bye. 